Well, we've been working through this series, and it's the last of the series, pretty much a great uh, a hinge point, a tipping point into our journey through to Christmas over the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, the final of our, our series of God Rocks. What happens when God rocks different aspects? I guess what we've been looking at up to now is where God rocks us as individuals, where he takes a grip of us, uh, destabilizes us, and then destabilizes us, and then recreates us, moves us to a solid platform, changes our perspectives, changes our views on life. Uh, That's what has to happen if God is truly going to deal with us, or if, or we could put it another way, we have not truly encountered God unless he has started to shake up our world. It is impossible, I would suggest to you, to be confronted by the God of the Bible without it deeply having an effect on you. You, We cannot be indifferent about Jesus. And I guess that's what we're looking at this afternoon, to ask the question, rather than it on a personal level, what happens when God rocks the whole of the world? Christmas is coming. You can't get away from it, can you? You just cannot stand against it. We can't do a King Canute when it comes to Christmas and stand on the edge and say, stop, waves rolling in. John Gresham wrote a brilliant book, uh, uh, Skipping Christmas. It became a really bad film called Christmas with the Cranks. Uh, Luther and Nora Crank. Luther Crank decides, this year, I'm not doing Christmas. Completely fed up with it, and it's just a great story of all of the attempts that he makes to try to uh, avoid Christmas. And in the end, he just said, right, okay, that's it, I give up. We're going to do Christmas. Christmas is irrepressible. Did you know that Christmas is the largest holiday impact in the whole of the world? It has a massive economic impact on the whole of the world. But one thing that I've read in this past week, which I found absolutely fascinating, and it's this, that Christmas is a growing celebration worldwide. There are more people entering into the celebration of Christmas on a global scale. Isn't that interesting? Where's Christmas from? 2,000 years ago, Jesus born in Bethlehem. Let's, Let's just forget for this moment about the claims of the Bible. Just for a moment. Let's just consider one man or one baby... Born into this world, Jesus of Nazareth, insignificant, born into the world, and yet that individual continues to have and is having a growing cultural influence on this world. One man. That's remarkable, isn't it? I find it incredible that this is not about an idea. This is not about something like like power or money, something which is an evidence. This is based on one life, the life of Jesus. And it continues to have an impact. In fact, we could say this. There is no single figure in the history of this world 
who has had the kind of impact that Jesus has had. No single figure has had the growing impact that Jesus of Nazareth has had in this world. You might be sat here thinking, well, I'm not even sure whether I believe in Jesus. Uh, I would respectfully suggest to you that the stack of historical evidence for the sheer existence of Jesus of Nazareth is irrefutable. I'm not saying, therefore you have to, at this point I'm not saying, therefore you have to accept all of the claims of the Bible, but what I am saying is at least the existence of Jesus is a historical reality. As solid as anything else, in fact more solid than pretty much everything else, that we look back on and we say, well that happened and that happened and that happened. The historical evidence for the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is irrefutable. But it is also true that he is undeniably significant and continues to have the greatest cultural impact that anybody has ever had. China, uh, an economy, a country which has been for centuries either violently opposed or agnostic to the Christian faith, is exploding, literally exploding, with those who are beginning to embrace faith in the Jesus of the Bible. Sub-Saharan Africa is exploding with belief in Jesus of the Bible. Latin America is exploding with belief in Jesus of the Bible. We live in Great Britain where in relative terms it is not growing at the kind of level that we've seen in the past. But on a world level, the Christian faith is growing probably at a faster rate than it ever has done in the history of this world. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Overturning philosophies and ideas that seem to have stood the test for centuries, overturning them. People turning away from ideologies, people turning away from other religions. Why? Because of one man. And we now enter into a time where we remember that he was born. Our reading here, however, reminds us that it didn't look that big. <laughs> when Jesus first came into the world, it really, really didn't look that big. We've got this little account of this man called uh, Joseph. If we go to one of the other Gospels, we see the, we see the family tree of Mary. In this particular account, although we haven't read the whole of chapter 1, which gives a very detailed genealogy of Joseph, who was, if you like, the father, the world father, in world's terms. He was in the family of Joseph. Um, We read of Joseph. Just an, an ordinary man. Just an ordinary guy. He was just going on about his business. He was caught up. In the events of this world. I guess many of us feel that we're a bit like Joseph really. 
We're just going through life. We're caught up in the things that are going on around us. We look at, we look at the kind of crisis in the economy and all of that kind of thing. The things that are going on in this world right now. And we, we can't do anything about it, can we? We're just caught up in it. Joseph was just like that. He was a man who was just caught up in what was going on in the world. He was, he, there is a little bit of debate actually. I found it quite interesting reading that um, somebody's looked at some of the, the words that are, are describing Joseph. And historically he's always been considered just a carpenter. There is a suggestion maybe he might have been a master builder. He might have been a little bit more significant than, than, than people have historically thought. It really doesn't matter. It honestly does not matter. Can I ask you the question, how many master builders do you know from the first century? None. None. However Joseph was, whether he was a, a virtual penniless carpenter or whether he was a relatively skilled master builder of renown he was uh, insignificant in terms of the Roman Empire he was just a nothing he was swept up in an event he was called as we read in one of the other accounts he was called to leave uh, where he was working and tr to travel to his family birth place Bethlehem why? Because the most powerful man in the world at that point in time had declared that that is what was to happen. There was a world, worldwide, in Roman world, census going on. Gathering information. And everybody had to travel back and here's this man, he's, I don't know, what, what kind of impact would that have had on his business? <laughs> what would have happened? It, I mean, can you imagine if all of us in this room this evening were told you've got to go back to your, uh, your birth town, the town of your family. I know there'd be a lot of planes in the sky. <laughs> Can you imagine the disruption that it would cause if we all had to go back? To, it, it would Imagine your jobs, imagine your family life, imagine your relationships, and yet he's just caught up in it. He's just... An ordinary man who is caught up in a situation. But that's not how the narrator of this story sees it. Look at what we read in the first uh, verse. We've broken in part way through here because I, I, I didn't want us to read a whole series of names, name after name after name after name. But what we read here is that when we look at the generations of Joseph, we see something quite interesting. There were 14 generations from a historical figure called Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was named Israel, who became the father of the nation of Israel. Ever wondered where Israel came from? came from a man called Jacob, whose, great, whose grandfather was Abraham. There were 14 generations from Abraham to King David. Who's King David? Historically the most significant king in the history of Israel. 
The one who God had said would be a, a prototype, a picture of the king that was to come. Fourteen generations, Abraham to David. Fourteen generations to the next massive, significant event in the life of Israel where they were taken over by the kingdom of Babylon and they became exiles. Fourteen generations from Babylon to Joseph. Fourteen, fourteen, fourteen. What, why does that happen? What, what's going on there? You see, Joseph's living out his life as though it's just kind of dragged along with everything that's going on, but not from God's perspective. From God's perspective, this is happening in a... just a, Not that 14, I don't think 14 is a particularly significant number at this point. What it says is this. God has got something going on. We were chatting, a group of us were chatting on Friday morning. And uh, we saw that in the silence of life, sometimes we wonder if God is working. You might have looked at the time from Abraham through to Jesus and said, is God working? (laughs) God's working well and truly. He's got all of this in hand. In fact, he makes it so symmetrical as if to just put his thumbprint on it and say, by the way, just so you know, this is in my plan. Because this man who is insignificantly heading off to Bethlehem is in the 14th generation. This, if you like, is the moment. Here it is. This is where it starts. This is the key point. The time has been reached. I've been working through this in all of this thousand or so year, thousand of years of planning and organizing and now poof, here's the moment. See, that's the other perspective that is going on as we read this story. Joseph finds himself in in human terms, I guess, in an ordinary situation. He's been dragged along by political powers. And then he finds himself in the next ordinary situation. And it was, in one sense, ordinary He finds that the woman who he's betrothed to marry is expecting a baby. And in a shame-based culture, which Israel was at that time, in a shame-based culture, it would have been way more of a scandal. And it also, in a shame-based culture, it would have been something that he would have had to have done something about. Or he would have been... It would have been perfectly reasonable for him to do something about it. He's done something wrong. In certain parts of this world today, this event would still result in somebody being stoned. It would still result in somebody being stoned. Now here is a turning point in the Bible, I would suggest. Because God speaks to Joseph and says, although that is what could be done, I want you to show the most remarkable grace. You ought to still take Mary as your wife. Now, betrothed, is a li- it's, we, we often say it's engaged. It's more than engaged. It's kind of a, an absolute legal commitment prior to final marriage. 
Uh, And Joseph had in his mind, as we see this, he he finds out that his wife is, wife-to-be is expecting. We read in verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, in other words, he could have had a stoned, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he's a gracious man, he had in mind that he would just send her away. There's his dilemma. The law says that she should die, but I'm a gracious man, therefore I'll send her away. And God intervenes and says, no, don't do either of those. Be even more gracious. Embrace her. Take her into your family. Continue to go through the plans that you have had. Marry her, he says. You see, this is the moment that God has in mind. Joseph, your thoughts on how to deal with this are different to my thoughts. And I'm going to explain to you how you should act. The other perspective, therefore, is that although Joseph is just going through life's events, God has got something going on. In Romans we read this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. Now in one sense, that at just the right time can mean while we were powerless. But at the same time, for Jesus to die at just the right time meant that he had to come into the world at just the right time time at just the right time that's precisely what he does the words that Joseph hears from this messenger from God as we read it here he hears he's he's spoken to by an angel of the Lord That said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. It's remarkable, isn't it? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Another way that we could say God with us is Christmas. Christmas? God with us? If you just think about how that word is formed, what does Christmas mean? Well, the first part is Christ. Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. If you write uh, Christ in Greek, as the New Testament first wrote it, the opening letter is an X, which is why I really haven't got a problem at all when we see the word Xmas. Because it's actually a historical shorthand for Christmas. The X of the New Testament Greek. Isn't that remarkable? 
So every time we see Xmas, and up in arms because that's taking Christ out of Christmas, actually it's far more historical and then we're there, which is why we're Christchurch with Xchurch website and all of that kind of thing. Christ. What does mass mean? Well, it's present, isn't it? It's physical. You think about science in school. It's that, it's that body. It's that, that something that's there. A mass of people. A mass of weight. That's something that is real and tangible. What does it mean, therefore? Christ, mass. The real Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, physically with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And that is at the very core of the whole of the message of the Bible. And that statement, God with us, is at the very heart of the hope of the message of the gospel. It's at the very heart of what Christmas is all about. It's at the very heart of why people around the world are beginning to see something which is significant. And it's this, that for us to come to terms with the God of the Bible means that God has got to come to us. God has got to make himself present with us. There have been so many times where a conversation has gone something like this. I'd believe in God if I could see him. You know, if God had just make himself visible, I would believe in him. And the message of the gospel, the message of the New Testament, is that God agrees with you. God agrees with that necessity of the visible presence of himself. He agrees that the God who is concerned and engaged in this world cannot possibly be a God who is distant and continuously invisible and continuously away from us. He says, yes, it is necessary for God to be visible. And so I will be. I will make myself visible. But look at the way it's framed. Look at the way this is described in, in, the, in the explanation that Joseph receives of how this has happened to Mary. Look in verse uh, 20, uh, 20, we see this. Joseph considered this. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? What has gone on, if we think about it, Every, the claim of the Bible is this, every single human being in the history of the world has required a father and a mother coming together in sexual union, either physically or in a laboratory, 
and a life being formed by the coming together of two selves. Every human being in the history of the world has required that. Two cells coming together. The combination of a man and a woman, a father and a mother, coming together to make a new life. In other words, every one of us in this room are the result of biological reproduction. We are the result of the natural recreation of another human being. But what we see here is that Jesus is the one exception. Because what we see here is that Jesus, according to the claim of the Bible, is formed uniquely, not by the coming together of two selves, but by the power of the Creator God, the Holy Spirit. We haven't got time, but if you've got time, go back to the beginning of your Bibles and see this. When God created the world, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was hovering over the deep, and God created the world. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see a crisis where the world hope is crushed by our rebellion against God. And every human being in all of the history of the world is marked by that, by two cells coming together and forming another human being in the same corrupt state, in the same mess, with the same potential to find ourselves in the grave. That's where every human being has been. Created first by God, and then crisis, and so all of us are marked by that crisis. What do we see here? The Holy Spirit creates again. The Holy Spirit creates, restarts humanity in Jesus a restart of humanity be precisely because of the problem of Genesis chapter 3. Precisely because of the problem of what went on back there. It's as though God sees and is now able to explain to us by his own presence for you to be saved, humanity has to be started again. And I'll start it again. By coming myself into this world. So probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible is John chapter 3 and verse 16 where it says this. For God loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world. Uh, there's one account. We looked at it the other night. There's one account of, of a man called Enoch who, who doesn't die, he just goes to heaven. All of us are going to die, aren't we? Unless Jesus returns again. That's going to happen. It's just, it's just a reality of our human existence. But God loves the created world. He doesn't, he hasn't created a plan for salvation 
where you and me come to faith and get whisked away. You know, we kind of, we come to faith and we believe in Jesus and suddenly it's, whew, it's disappeared. You know, he loves this world. And he loves humanity. And he loves the way he has formed humanity. And he is so committed to the idea of creation. He is so committed to the idea of humanity in our formed experience that he says, I am not going to whisk you off to be saved. I am going to enter into this world and start humanity again. That is why, that is what makes sense of a lot of the other verses in the New Testament where Jesus says things like, you must be born again. What does that mean? It means that you have to become a partaker of this new humanity in me. You have to enter into me. You have to become a human being, not in your old state, but in your new state in me, because I'm the one who started it all again. I'm the one who has now perfected it. I'm the one who has rescued it. I'm the one who has redeemed it. And therefore, if you believe in me, you enter into me. You enter into this newly established human race, which has eternal potential. That's why it is not some horrendous, arrogant claim where Jesus said, effectively, you can only be saved by me. It sounds so arrogant. But from Jesus' perspective, it's because I am the only one who has had the potential to restart the human race. I am the only one who gives access to that recreation. Anywhere else you go, you've got the same problem. And he says, no, you've got to enter into me. We're entering into a time, aren't we, where we see the impact of Jesus. Undeniably. You know, Christmas everywhere. I reckon that for most there is just a just the briefest glimmer of what Christmas is actually all about. But we cannot deny that one history, historical figure, has rocked this world. We have to ask ourselves why. Why is it that one saviour claimant in amongst all of the other saviour claimants down through the centuries, has stood the test? Why is it that there is one who has, who has continued to cause upheaval in this world? Why is the one who is continually, continually drawing more people now to him than even, in, even down the centuries? More people coming to faith than in the history of the world? Why? Because he makes absolutely unique claims. Absolutely unique claims. But I would suggest to you at least spend the time understanding that those claims have a logical consistency. Which is on the one hand breathtakingly simple and on the other hand so remarkable that I would suggest it cannot possibly have been created within the minds of human beings. It is just way too clever. Way too clever.